2: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, Trump's major escalation. Iran's most powerful general is killed by American firepower.
3: His reign of terror is over.
2: Now, Tehran is vowing revenge promising a crushing response, even as the world urges calm. Are we at the start of the next Middle Eastern war? We'll explain just who was General Qasem Soleimani and examine the complex ties between Iran, Iraq, and America. Then we'll discuss Trump's decision to kill Soleimani, the consequences in the Middle East and beyond... I'll speak with Bali Nasser, Richard Haas, and others. Finally, how to get ahead in the 2020s. People say become a specialist. The research suggests the opposite. An eye-opening conversation with David Epstein. But first, here's my take. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Michael Corleone's lament in Godfather 3 about never being able to escape his family business of crime could well be said about America's entanglement in the Middle East. Donald Trump came into office firmly committed to the bipartisan consensus that the U.S. had wasted more than a decade and untold blood and treasure in the Middle East. Meanwhile, the country had neglected its own problems, like its crumbling infrastructure and forgotten working class, In foreign policy, the consensus held, Washington should have been focused on the real challenge, a rising competitor in China. And yet, here we are a few years later, the old conflict still not resolved, moving towards military escalation in the Middle East again. Qasem Soleimani was an enemy of the United States, a man who had directed his forces to battle against American troops and who had directed Iran's military operations in the region. The Trump administration was justified in targeting him in moral terms. But why has it placed itself in a situation where, for two years now, it has been continually ratcheting up tensions in the most volatile part of the world? What American interests are being served by this strategy? What is its goal? Trump's policy toward Iran has, from the start, been marked by ideology and emotion rather than strategic sense. He inherited a manageable situation. Tehran's march toward a nuclear arsenal had been stopped. Every outside intelligence agency, including Israel's, concluded that Iran was abiding by the nuclear agreement. The country remained active in spreading its influence across the region, as it had for years, so that challenge to America and its allies remained. Trump withdrew from the agreement, tightened the economic noose around Iran, and designated its Revolutionary Guards as terrorists. This maximum pressure campaign seemed geared toward nothing less than regime change in Tehran, a goal Trump has denied. With the killing of General Soleimani, any prospect of a new nuclear deal or any negotiations with the Iranians has evaporated. Washington has expanded hostilities with no clear objective or end point. In January 2007, when George W. Bush announced the surge, sending thousands more troops into Iraq, I happened to be having lunch with a well-connected Chinese friend. I asked his opinion of the escalation. His response, We would hope that you would send the entire American army into Iraq and stay for another 10 years. Meanwhile, we, China, will keep building up our economy. It's easy to get into another conflict in the Middle East. The place is unstable. There are lots of real bad guys. And many of the locals want America to come in and fight their battles for them. But getting dragged back into the morass once again, getting mired in other people's quarrels, losing another decade as China and others march on, that would be the surest path to America's strategic decline. And let's get started. To begin to understand the significance of this killing, I think we need to understand who Qasem Soleimani was. We need to understand the history of the relations between Iran and Iraq and America. To do all of that, I could think of no better guests than Wali Nasser and Dexter Filkins. Vali was until last year the Dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. He's a former State Department official and a scholar of international rela- relations and Islam. Vali was born in Tehran. Dexter Filkins is a staff writer at the New Yorker, one of the greatest war reporters around. In 2013, he wrote what I think is the best profile of Qasem Soleimani for the magazine. Uh, Dexter, explain, you know, people have talked about Soleimani, brave, uh, revered in the country, uh, obviously regarded by the United States as a terrorist, but why did he have this central role in Iran, um, what is the nature of Iran's, you know, regional influence? That it that it's the the military guy who ends up being the single most important guy who directs all these operations.
4: Well, I think S- Soleimani is a product. I think above all, uh, was a product of uh, of the Iran Iraq War, which was a catastrophic catastrophic event for Iran. A million people dead, and when that war ended in the late 1980s, um, they set out. The Iranians set out to ensure that this would never happen again. And basically what that meant was kind of establishing clients and client states across the region, but but principally Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Assad regime in Syria, and the Shiites in Iraq, and essentially to ensure that they had strategic depth. And I think that's that vision they've been executing for 30 years, and Soleimani was very effective at doing it.
2: And what he did was he had ties with the militias in these various countries so those those people could act on Iran's behalf.
4: Yes, indeed. Yes. And and I mean, the the kind of the rescue of the Assad regime is a perfect example. Assad was ready to fall 2012, 2013. The Iranians basically came to the rescue and they brought in their militias to do it. Hezbollah, the Iraqi militias, they all came in and basically saved Assad at, at Soleimani's
2: direction. And from what you can tell, Vali, is, is uh, is iran's policy in this regard uh, you know this we keep hearing about all their regional activities does it feel to you offensive or defensive
5: i think it's both it's in the eyes of the beholder in in the in the view of iran it doesn't have a, a technologically advanced conventional military it spends less on arms than saudi arabia israel or or turkey it is afraid of the united states it sees itself in a hostile environment, and it looks at these militias essentially as its uh, missile systems or anti-missile systems. For instance, it views Hezbollah as a deterrence against Israeli attack uh, on Iran. Uh, But in the eyes of the Arabs, in the eyes of Israel, what Iran sees as defensive is offensive. And Iraq, in particular, is very important because uh, Iranians, after the Iran-Iraq war, decided that they will never be safe with iraq unless iraq is under their control and the united states did them the favor of removing saddam hussein iran is using this opportunity to make sure that iraq is neutralized and it will never again be a threat to iran and that made Soleimani's operations in iraq very important i want to add also one other thing to what dexter said is that Soleimani was also Iran's chief diplomat in the region. Iran's foreign ministry is not that active in the Arab world. Soleimani met presidents like Assad, president of Iraq, uh, um, president of Afghanistan. He's reputed to have met with Putin personally at the Kremlin and personally persuaded uh, Russia to enter the war in Syria. So he he had he was not just in relationship with militias. He had a broad relationship in the region I mean he was instrumental in putting together multiple Iraqi governments for instance
2: and next to that raises the question um, Charles de Gaulle once said the graveyards are filled with indispensable people <laughs> is is Qasem Soleimani genuinely indispensable or are these ties you know really ties that are very deep and will persist
4: They'll persist. I mean, I, 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 I think uh, w- one of the clerics when Assad was teetering said, this is about 2013, if, if Assad falls, we can't hold Tehran. Um, and so I think it's that important to them. And so they'll carry on. I, is, is Soleimani indispensable? I think it's a, it's a body blow to the regime. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think he's replaceable in the short term. I mean, will, will somebody come in and fill in all the gaps? Probably over time. But uh, But they're suffering right now
2: when when we talk about I think it's always important to look at this uh, from the other side's perspective so when we talk about the fact that uh, he has blood on his hands American mm-hmm. blood absolutely true I mean mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know I, from the American point of view clearly uh, a terrorist um, from well, I remember being in Iraq in oh three or four and people would say uh, or four or five sorry and people would say well you know pe- people allied to these Shia militias look Remember, yeah, we're killing your guys, but you're killing us. In other words, this is a war. We're, you know, Soleimani was directing people who were trying to kill his guys.
5: Well, you know, yes, he was the executor of Iran's strategy, uh, much like, let's say, Pakistani generals are executors of Pakistan strategy in Afghanistan, and by many counts, they have American blood of sorts on their hands as well. But he was given a, a remit by the Iran's leadership, to make the United States uncomfortable in Iraq, make sure that the U.S. doesn't stay, make sure that the U.S. gets out. And, and, and he executed that. And yes, it's bloody, uh, but it wouldn't have been any different if he had been the commander of a force in, in battlefield fighting and was lobbing you know, rockets and, and, and directing tanks at, at, at U.S. troops. So, And that's exactly why it's complicated that the reaction among uh, Ira- Shias in Iraq or in Syria or in the region and many in Iran is very different from the reaction outside of Iran uh, or or in the United States to his death.
2: Stay with us. Uh, Next on GPS, we're going to talk about how Iran and Iraq are more than just neighbors. They share a long common history as majority Shia countries, and after years of enmity, they are now closely allied. We'll talk about that when we come back. And we are back with Vali Nasser and Dexter Filkins talking about Iran, Iraq, America, and Qasem Soleimani. Vali, um, I, I think again, most people don't understand the, the backdrop behind which every, all this is happening, which is what you have described in your first book as the Shia revival. Mm-hmm. Explain what the Shia revival is and how that plays into Iran's assertiveness, or Iran's relationship with Iraq.
5: Well, uh, the Shias uh, are a minority sect in Islam, but but there's a large portion of of, of that population live in the Middle East, in Iran, in Lebanon, in Iraq, across the rim of the Persian Gulf. And after the Iraq War in particular, uh, there was a shift in power in Iraq away from the Sunni-dominated dictatorship under Saddam towards the Shias. And and this sort of created a schism within the Middle East between the Sunnis, who had wielded power, and the Shiites, which were the rising force. And Iran took advantage of this in building relations in Iraq, strengthening its relations in in Lebanon, building relations in Bahrain with Shias in Afghanistan, Pakistan, essentially creating what we now sometimes call the Shia Crescent. But importantly, the Shia Shia minorities in these countries, uh, there was a case of the tail wagging the dog as well. They looked to Iran to help them empower. The Shias in Iraq also took advantage of Iran to consolidate their power. And and in that scenario, Qasem Soleimani became very important because he was the linchpin of the political-military relationship between Iran and these Shia communities. I think part of his popularity among Shia Arabs and some Iranians is the fact that the insurgency in Iraq, the war in Syria, and the rise of ISIS were seen as Sunni assaults on Shias. And so he's credited with protecting southern Iraq from being taken over by ISIS right. at the moment where there was no Iraqi army and no American military. And, and he's seen as sort of a savior, and that fed his aura. In fact, he became a household name in Iran only after ISIS rose, because many Iranians thought he protected the Shia shrines uh, from, from ISIS. So the backdrop to, to the entire sort of myth of Soleimani is this ongoing sectarian schism in the region.
2: And, you know, I remember talking to an Iraqi Shia politician who said to me, um, you know, you Americans, you have influence in the region because you can bomb, because you have great firepower. The Iranians have influence because they have local partners who have deep credibility, uh, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, and they have ties to these, these communities. So it's a much more... I think what he was trying to say is a much more bottom up kind of influence. Yeah, I think he said you Americans and the Israelis, you go around bombing and you think that gives you influence.
4: They're right down the street. And and in 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 Iraq, the the Iranians have basically operated and to a certain extent directed and created uh, the Shiite militias which have bit were very effective fighting against ISIS. They were very effective in fighting against the United States, but they're they also act as political actors in the political system. So, I mean, it's kind of this hybrid that we don't have in the West, uh, which is basically political parties with guns. And so these are really important players which are, in in Iraq, which are deeply connected
2: to Iran. Now, I want to ask you, Vali, how you think they're going to respond, the Iranians, given everything we've described. We've just heard that Adil Abdul Mahdi, the prime minister, has asked Parliament to uh, essentially kick the Americans out of Iraq. It seems to me if this happens, it is, it might, the, the Iranians might even view it as worth the death of Qasem Soleimani. This has been their longest standing goal, to get the Americans out of Iraq ever since 2003.
5: I agree. I mean, the, the Iranians have to do something symbolic in order to save face, tell their constituencies inside Iran and outside Iran that they didn't take Soleimani's blow without responding to it. But I think the longer-term view is that now Iran views the United States as much more of a mortal threat than it was before, particularly President Trump has shown that he can cross red lines on and on and on that nobody thought, leave the nuclear deal, put maximum economic pressure, push for regime change, and now even carry out audacious assassinations. So, so I think the Iranians would like the United States to leave, starting with Iraq, then is Afghanistan. And then he's trying to draw a wedge between America's allies in in the Persian Gulf and the United States, who are very worried about conflict. And I think we have a situation in which the Iranians now view any chaos in the region still preferable to an American presence. This didn't used to be the case. Certain amount of stability was necessary for them. So I I think they will push and push, use uh, masses in the streets in addition to Parliament, and I think if they get the United States out of Iraq, I think that's a huge victory. And then that would make it much more difficult for us to also sustain our presence elsewhere as well.
2: You know, Vali talked about the, the other uh, American allies. At some level, we have gotten dragged in. The United States has gotten dragged into a, 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 a battle between Saudi Arabia and Iran for regional hegemony or for regional influence. Um, and it feels to me like what's interesting in this Soleimani assassination is the Saudis uh, have been very restrained. They haven't crowed about this, even when the Ira- Iranian attack on the oil facilities took place. So they seem to be, you know, as, as per what Vali was saying, they want stability. This is even for the Saudis too much instability.
4: I think that's right. I think they're probably probably a little nervous now that things are going to get out of control. I mean, what if what if the Iranians sank an oil tanker right. tomorrow? Right. Um, that would that would. Cripple the economies of the whole of the whole region. So I, I, they, the Saudis don't want chaos.
2: Do you think that uh, when you talk to people, uh, you know, when researching that profile about Soleimani, mm-hmm. do you think that people thought he was a potential successor to Khomeini? I've heard that, but it always struck me as far-fetched. He has no religious credentials.
4: Yeah, I, I think it was far-fetched. But I think he's probably the, he was the second most powerful man in the country. But he, he was in an ideal position. He had. He had power without accountability. It's just where he wanted to be.
2: Dexter, Valley, pleasure to have you guys on. Um, next on GPS, the threats and the counter-threats flying back and forth between Iran and America. We will talk about the next moves with Richard Haas, Megan O'Sullivan, and Peter Bainer. On Saturday, Iran's President Hassan Rouhani said the killing of General Qasem Soleimani was a grave mistake and America would face the consequences for years. Then Saturday night, President Trump tweeted threats to Iran, saying America's military is the biggest and by far the best in the world, just spent $2 trillion on military equipment. And he went on, if Americans were attacked by Iran, he wouldn't hesitate to attack. He said he had 52 Iranian targets ready, places important to Iran and the Iranian culture, and they would be hit very fast and very hard. So where does this all go? Joining me now, Megan O'Sullivan was Deputy National Security Advisor and in charge of Iraq and Afghanistan during the George W. Bush administrations. She's now at Harvard's Kennedy School. Richard Haas was the Director of Policy Planning in the George W. Bush State Department. And Peter Beiner definitely did not work for George W. Bush. He is a journalist, writer, and professor, among other things, and he is a contributor to The Atlantic and CNN. Megan, I have to ask you, the, the we now know that various administrations in some sense considered all the options uh, with iran and never chose this option killing qasem soleimani um, why i
1: think any administration looking at this, Bush, Obama, or the Trump administration, has to weigh the pros and cons. And I think it's safe to say that previous administrations thought there would be a counterterrorism benefit. No doubt, this person is we're better off without him. But that had to be evaluated in the context of all the risks that come along with it. And it's not just the risk to the U.S.-Iran relationship and the potential for confrontation there. It's the risk to U.S. posture in the region. It's the risk to the U.S. in Afghanistan. It's the risk to to broader American goals and bringing more U.S. power forces, diplomatic uh, assets to the Middle East at a time when even the Trump administration has acknowledged in its national security strategy that the real threats to American interests are in Russia and in China. So the risks obviously had to be evaluated in a certain way, but my concern is more about how did the Trump administration see the benefits, and how does that compare to how Bush and Obama might have seen the benefits. The benefits here are on the counterterrorism front for sure. Soleimani was a critical person, as your previous panel discussed. But I'm concerned that the the Trump administration might have assessed, uh, might have made this decision based on an assessment about a certain kind of weakness within the Iranian regime. We have noted that they have certainly said they're not for regime change, but the idea that the Iranian regime might be at a critical point of fragility under severe economic sanctions. And uh, widespread protests in Iran. Maybe the Trump administration thought that this was a gamble that would have a much bigger payoff than just removing Soleimani.
2: And and that seems at at least, I mean, for 35 years, people have been saying the Iranian regime is about to be is about to collapse.
1: There's not a lot, I think, of Iranian experts who would agree with analysis that the Iranian regime is about to collapse. It is true. It's in a fragile state. But this kind of action, my assessment would be that it's more likely to consolidate the Iranian regime than it is to be a final blow or it is going to uh, break it up in any way. Because this will um, allow the Iranians to unify. Soleimani was a revered figure in Iran and in other parts of the Middle East.
2: So, Richard, if I think about the short-term consequences that we, you know, people say, well, short-term, it's been good for America. But even in the short term, it has consolidated power in Iran, uh, and it has weakened America's position in Iraq. One way to think about this is one month ago, there were anti-Iranian protests in Tehran, anti-regime protests, and anti-Iran protests in Baghdad. Today, in both of those capitals, there are anti-American protests.
3: Right. It's totally changed the narrative inside Iraq. And all those people who are going to be celebrating that American troops come home from Iraq, they should just take a deep breath and think about the potential price there. It means uh, Iraq will be essentially completely open to Iranian influence. And I thought that was part of our goals was to limit it. Iraq also, we've seen, has been a hotbed of terrorism. So Americans in the region and our friends in the region are likely to be threatened by the resumption and revival and terrorism in parts of the country, that will, the, the government there will not be able to police on its own. But can I just do one other thing? I want to take issue a little bit with your take, if, uh, at the risk of never being invited back on your chauffeur. Uh, I think strategically, what you said is exactly right, Megan. Alluded to it too—that this emphasis here is totally at odds with the fact that we've got to think about China, Russia, North Korea. But it's not that we got pulled into the Middle East. This administration pushed itself into Iran. This administration broke the 2015 nuclear deal even though Iran was in full compliance. Then we slapped sanctions on Iran but don't give them a diplomatic off-ramp. Now we have introduced military force as well. It's as though we decided we wanted to escalate the U.S.-Iranian confrontation but there wasn't, this administration didn't inherit an impossible situation. It was totally tolerable in the region, and it was obviously desirable given everything else on our plate. Even Donald Trump, the last I checked, he talks about America first. How is this ex- consistent with yeah. America first? So it makes no sense given his own lights that he wanted to put a greater focus at home and a greater focus on great power rivalry. So this to me suggests a total absence of any serious strategic discipline, the total absence of a national security process. It's impossible for me to understand how this could have happened if you had had a rigorous policy review. So you feel like I'm being unfair to Michael Corleone.
2: (laughs) Who really really was trying to get out of the family business. Exactly. Um, Peter, that raises the question, why? Um, Why has Trump and Pompeo have uh, been so obsessed with this idea. I think Megan alluded to something which is important. There really does seem to be behind this a belief that you, could, you just push hard enough and the whole Iranian regime will collapse. Look, there are certainly people who
6: would like ultimately to produce a war in which the United States bombed Iran. Right? and therefore set back its nuclear program. Right? We don't know exactly where in the administration those folks are, but there are people around in Washington who would like that. Donald Trump may believe that he can do this one day, Thre- send out some extremely menacing tweets, as he did with North Korea, if we remember, a couple of years ago, and then pull back and be friends the next day. Right. This is not a guy who tends to think very much about the consequences of anything he does. But to me, in some ways, the most remarkable part of all of this is if there's one instinct you would think Donald Trump would understand, it would be nationalism. Nationalism is the defining instinct, his own defining instinct impulse. Yet he has so little ability to imagine the nationalism of other people. As you were rightly saying, right? We took an Iraqi nationalism that was focused on hostility to Iran, an Iranian nationalism that was growing against its own state and turned both of those nationalisms against us. For goodness sakes, to say we're going to attack Iranian cultural sites, can this man not imagine how Americans would react if a foreign power, no matter how many... How much we hated our leadership. Said they were going to bomb the Statue of Liberty in Mount Rushmore. I mean, it's absolutely insane.
2: Uh, Megan, the, the, you do get the feeling, to Richard's point and to Peter's, that there is a lack of some kind of process. Yeah, that, you know, um, I mean, from the reports we get, uh, Trump decided to do this at the last minute. The Pentagon was surprised. Um, you, you know, that I would be surprised if this tweet that he's going to bomb, you know, these sculptural sites, did not go through some rigorous <laughs> national security process. Um, do, do you do you worry, given how volatile the th- things are, and that this is all being done by one man, we could stumble into war?
1: Certainly, I think it's very concerning if the reports are right that this decision was made uh, just a few days before it was executed, and it was made to the surprise of. Trump's national security team. If that is the case, going back to Richard's point, it's inconceivable to me that the appropriate processes could have been in place, that people could have thought about all of the implications, again, not just for U.S.-Iran relations, but U.S. in the Middle East, U.S. posture vis-a-vis North Korea, the peace process in Afghanistan that Iran has already been a spoiler in. All the the implications would have taken, in my mind, weeks of analysis, building contingency plans, preparing partners, allies, so that we wouldn't get what we saw uh, today. We surprised
2: the Iraqi government. For example. I was just
1: going to say that uh, Prime Minister Adel Abdul-Medi, the fact that he was supporting or allegedly supporting a bill to withdraw American troops and that Ayatollah Sistani, um, that both of them uh, were critical of the U.S. presence in Iraq is a dramatic change from where things have been. Uh, over the last 16 or 17 years. And so in order for us to be adequately prepared, um, it would have taken much, much more than one meeting or even several days.
2: All right, stay with us. Uh, Next on GPS, what kind of new precedent does the killing of Qasem Soleimani set? What kind of a Pandora's box did it open? A provocative headline in the Times of India asks, if Iranian general can be droned for terrorism, why not a Pakistani general? Is that the new world? We'll discuss when we come back. And we are back with Megan O'Sullivan, Richard Haas and Peter Beinhart. Peter, what do you think about this, uh, the the precedent for these kind of drone strikes? Uh, I mean, if 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 it's okay for the United States to do this, uh, surely the Pakistan- the Indians are right. Why can't they drone a Pakistani general who has blood on his hands? Uh, why can't the Chinese do it if they believe that there is a Uyghur terrorist, which, you know, which they will claim uh, uh, certainly whether or not it's true? Why could the Burmese government not do it with Rohingyas and so on?
6: Right. I mean, this is, I think, the dark side of American exceptionalism. And I think it goes back to the justification for the Iraq War, which was also a violation of international law. We had no U.N. support. There, was, there were claims, bogus claims, that this was preemptive self-defense. And now we're seeing that again, right? We don't, haven't seen the evidence for this. And the idea is that because Americans are such angels, that we can be trusted with this power, essentially a lawless power, outside of international law, also basically outside of domestic law, since there was no congressional approval for this. We're going on authorizations that were passed almost two decades ago and then we're going to say, but no, you rest of the world can't do this because you don't have our higher nobility, right? That's not, we saw what happened in Crimea and the way the Russians justified that after U.S. behavior. This sets a tone for the entire world, and it's not a tone that's going to, world, going to make the world a better place.
2: Megan, I want to ask you about something Peter pointed out, which is that we have not been shown any evidence. We, it's not even been alluded to in terms of specifics Uh, That suggests that the strike was preemptive that that there were actual plots Uh, In the past when this has happened. We've been given details Um, Is it fair to say particularly given the president's credibility problem? I mean he you know has told many many falsehoods that it's probably not true that there was an imminent threat that there were actual plots that were being averted by this strike
1: I'm not in a position to say that it's probably not true. I would agree, however, that under virtually any circumstances I can imagine, the immediate next steps of an administration that took action so dramatic and escalatory as this would be to go to our allies, would be to go to the United Nations, would be to share the intelligence, would be able to you know make the case to others why this was absolutely necessary at this moment and in this space. So again, remember, this is uh, in a third country. Um, and why it had to be done at this time. And the fact that we haven't seen that, I think, is very worrying. Um, Not only because it makes us question, was there really intelligence that would have given this Uh, some kind of legitimate justification, not just a moral justification. But it also suggests to me that the Trump administration is going to fall short on the diplomatic, political, all the other tools of engagement that will need to accompany a confrontation with Iran, whatever the next turn may be. You know, how well this goes for the United States and our partners and allies depend on how well the United States works with its allies, is working with Saudi Arabia, which has every reason to be very, very nervous about what comes next, working with the Europeans, talking uh, with, the, with the Asians. I mean, all of this should be part and parcel of any plan to take out such a significant figure. And again, he wasn't a non-state actor hiding out in some ungoverned territory. He was a senior government official of Iran.
2: Um, Richard, talk about this, this, this larger regional dynamic, because we have gotten ourselves in, involved In Saudi Arabia's rivalry with Iran, uh, the Saudis now seem, you know, quiet. quiet. How is this going to play out? There's the big consequence we're seeing right now, which is our position in Iraq, is threatened. But beyond that, describe what you think happens.
3: It's going to play out in at least two ways. One is it's going to, coming back to what we were talking about before, draw us in more. This has been the part of the world where the United States has essentially devoted a disproportionate, percentage of its resources, time, attention, military force, for 30 years now, since the end of the Cold War. And the question is, why do we want to continue this? Does anyone seriously think this is where 21st century history is going to be decided? We're talking about 4% of the world's population, other than energy or, or negative things, proliferation, terrorism. This is not the part of the world that's going to be creative. So this reinforces a strategic error. Uh, in some ways what we're seeing is the Trump administration's equivalent of what George W. Bush did in Iraq. That was a major ill-advised war of choice. This is an ill-advised policy of choice from the, to make Iran so, so central, truly misguided. And I think now it also takes place against the backdrop of much greater doubt about American reliability, the way the United States threw the Kurds under the bus, the fact that we did this unilaterally, Uh, in some ways to the Iraqis rather than with the Iraqis. The fact that the Saudis felt abandoned when their refinery was uh, hit. And the previous administration had its own unpredictability in places like Libya, Egypt, Syria. So the United States is no longer seen as a reliable, predictable partner. So what that suggests to me is we're increasingly in a, a Middle East where other actors, countries and others, will take matters into their own hands. And in many cases, they are going to disregard American interests. They are going to do things where they're going to say, hey, maybe we need nuclear weapons because we can't count on the United States, or we're going to go to war, or we're going to cut this deal. So the, the problem is we still have interests in this, in this region, but we have now truly mishandled them. And I think uh, both in the narrow of the region, but also globally, this will come back to bite us, Farid. Peter, I have 30
2: seconds. Israel, how do you think this uh, this will play in Israel? Look,
6: I think the, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be happy about this, and hawkish people, they saw Soleimani as their great adversary, and I think politically for Netanyahu, probably the escalation of threats as he goes into another election, tries to get immunity, is probably good for him. But I think more sober national security officials will say, does America have a strategy? Do we actually want to get into a regional war in which Hezbollah and Lebanon could be activated and all of northern Israel could be evacuated against? Sober minds will say that Donald Trump is taking Israel to a dangerous place.
2: Fascinating conversation. Thank you all very much. We will naturally be back on this. Um, A quick programming note before the next segment. Tune in to CNN at 10 p.m. Eastern tonight to see my CNN special report, Presidents on Trial, an inside look at impeachment. Now, next on GPS, how to get ahead in business. Is it better to focus on one skill or better to be a generalist? You can imagine what I think. Find out what the research tells us when we come back. The prevailing wisdom for success is pick a field and stick to it. Practice makes perfect, after all. From exceptional athletes to exceptional violinists, people are advised to find a specialty. But my next guest, David Epstein, says we've got it all wrong. The best path to success is to explore widely and even fail. He's the author of the recent book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David Epstein, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. So I love this idea because, of course, I think of myself as a jack-of-all-trades, which is, in your elevated form, a generalist. Um, Why is, you know, we've often heard all about how actually it's very important to have a passion, to work 10,000 hours at things. Uh, Why is it okay to to be a jack-of-all-trades?
0: I think there's sort of two reasons. The first is that as the world becomes more specialized— Experts, specialized experts who are still important are seeing a smaller and smaller portion of the whole picture. And so these opportunities for generalists to synthesize information in technology, in science, in politics are greater than they've ever been before. And secondly, when we specialize too early, we miss out on our best, what economists call match quality, the degree of fit between your interests, your abilities and the work that you do. And that's really important for both your motivation and your productivity to maximize that match quality. And so you need a period of sampling different things to try to maximize that.
2: So that's a very important point, it seems to me, that you, you say that in order to figure out what you are good at, you can't do it theoretically. Uh, you can't imagine what you think you're – you can't even do it by just studying something. That's you right. actually have to engage in the – you, know, you, know, you have to try out stuff – and what do you call it? The learned experience is better.
0: That's exactly right. So we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, as, as one of the researchers uh, I talked to says. And what she means is that we can't just introspect and decide what we're good at or, or what we might like. Right? Our, our insight into ourselves is constrained by our roster of previous experiences. So we learn who we are in practice by trying things, reflecting on those things, and then zigzagging accordingly until we, we find a place where we alone can succeed and feel fulfilled. And through that zigzagging, people tend to become broader and
2: more like generalists. Now, there is one part of this which I was I was surprised by, and it doesn't it doesn't seem to be quite fits, But explain it, which is this Air Force Academy uh, um, example that you have
0: uh, in, in education. So there was this um, incredible study at the Air Force Academy where students uh, go in; they have to take three math classes in succession. And they are randomized to professors. And this study was looking at the impact of professor quality. And what these researchers found was that the way to produce the best immediate achievement, which was to teach narrow specialized skills, systematically undermines students for future classes.
2: Uh, you're saying that, you know, if you're good at something in the short run, you pay a price in the long run. But you're saying only if in the short run what you're doing is you're, you're getting that good performance by narrowing yourself down.
0: That's right. So, and the quickest, the absolute quickest way to get improvement, whether this is a cognitive skill or a physical skill, like in the sports world, is to teach what's called closed skills or using procedures, where you teach people specialized techniques for whatever they're doing, whether they're playing soccer or they're solving a math problem. But to build a scaffolding where their knowledge becomes flexible, you want to teach so-called making connections knowledge, where they have to draw together these broad concepts, and instead of learning to just execute something, they learn how to match a strategy to a problem. And it doesn't matter if it's a math problem, a geopolitical problem, or a soccer problem. And that's, that's the fundamental basis on which they can layer these other skills.
2: You talk about how it may be, we may be in an age where you need kind of continuous coaching, no matter what it is you do. How would one achieve that?
0: Yeah, well, I think I think what we already have gotten pretty good at inside the sports world for example, we need to bring to to other areas of work because again, this this idea that we learn who we are in practice not in theory, what we have to do is act and then think basically. You do things and then you reflect on them, what they say about you and you zigzag accordingly instead of kind of following the the commencement speech advice to Decide who you'll be in 20 years and march confidently toward that. And I think having a, a coach can really help you and remind you to reflect on what you've done as you try to optimize your own match quality.
2: So life is a lot of trial and error. A lot of trial think. and error with plus reflection. Um, if, if you were to leave people with one piece of advice, what would it be? I think, if they,
0: I think that sometimes the fastest way to become proficient in something undermines your long-term development. So before your eyes, progress often can make you very good at a specialized task. But nowadays, tasks that are very specialized are in danger of getting automated. So if you want this flexible knowledge, we've gone from the industrial economy to the knowledge economy, now to the creativity economy, you need to be able to do new things. And that's a slower form of learning where you have to learn across disciplines and build these conceptual models.
2: And you believe that's true even in the world of technology, because, you know, a lot of people feel that the hottest place to be, is to be in technology, which is often quite narrow. Coding is a very narrow uh, um, business.
0: Yeah, I I didn't know, but then I looked at the research in this, and what it shows is that, for example, in studies of millions of patents, the technological innovators who make the biggest impacts are not the ones who have drilled down the deepest, but the ones who have spread their work across a huge number of different technological classifications, according to the U.S. Patent Office. Those are the people who can solve these, these problems that we don't even know kind of Exist yet, basically.
2: You have a four-month-old. When uh, when he or she becomes old enough for you to start instructing uh, him or her, what will you do?
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna do exactly what what I said, which is I'm gonna expose them to a lot of different things. If if the kid, if my son wants to specialize, that's fine. But all these these tales of prodigies like Tiger Woods and Mozart their parents were responding to their displays of interest and prowess, not the reverse, like it's often told. So I'll try to expose him broadly and be that coach who helps him reflect on what he did so that he can march toward his his optimal match quality.
2: Fantastic.
0: David, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for having me.
2: And we will be back.
4: CNN Special Report, the trial of William Jefferson Clinton, tonight at 9.
2: For the first time, the Bureau of Economic Analysis has published GDP data for the United States' 3,113 counties. From America's least productive county, tiny Issaquina in Mississippi, to its most productive, sprawling Los Angeles County in California, the data captures the economic output of each and every one of these political subdivisions of states. And it brings me to my question this week. In 2018, America's 31 most productive counties, basically the top 1% of counties, were responsible for what share of GDP? 11%, 17%, 25%, or 32%? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Jason DeParles' A Good Provider Is One Who Leaves. This is the best book on immigration I've read. Three decades ago, Jason DePaul moved into the Manila slums with a family. He chronicles their immigration story, but through it tells the larger tale of what it all means. His empathy, intelligence, and good writing shine through every page. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is D. Bloomberg found that 31 counties accounted for nearly one-third of the nation's GDP in 2018. Take a look at this map. Together, these 31 counties occupy a tiny part of the United States geographically. High output is concentrated in major cities across a dozen or so industries, making urban counties the primary engines of economic growth. So while it's true that the economy is growing, only pockets of the nation are gaining significantly from that growth, while the rest are lagging behind. The BEA's economic data adds a new dimension to the discussion of America's rural-urban divide. Recall the 2016 election. Trump won about 2,600 counties, dwarfing Clinton's county count of roughly 500. But still, Clinton won the popular vote by nearly 3 million. In 2015, her 500 counties generated two-thirds of American GDP, while his 2,600 generated only one-third of the country's GDP. Growth rates are now up in the counties that voted for Trump, but Clinton's high-output counties still grew faster overall. So the geographic concentration of growth has only become more extreme, which could make for another surprising election result in 2020. Thanks to all of you for being part of the program this week. I will see you next week.
4: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country